Thanks, Ben. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. There's a, a common thing that happens around here uh, right after Easter. I don't think it's unique, or right after Easter, <laughs> right after Thanksgiving. Um, I don't think it's unique to our church. I think this is a thing everywhere. Um, there's like a refrain that Brian and I start to hear, which is like, when are we going to sing Christmas songs and why, or why aren't we singing more Christmas songs? Uh, and then I actually had an interaction with someone right before this of like, it's too early to sing Christmas songs. Um, and so we get like caught right in the middle of the back and forth on that. And, but then something interesting happens when we actually, when we actually play them and sing them in worship. And that's that, you know, there's the, the common sort of maxim that familiarity breeds contempt. Now, I don't think our familiarity with Christmas songs makes us dislike them or hate them or something like that. But I do think that there's like a nostalgic element to Christmas songs where like they feel a certain way to us. And yet our sort of familiarity with them means that once we actually try to like use those in worship, uh, and, and I'm guilty of this too, we just sort of like mutter along with the familiar words and we're able to like sing the familiar words and think about like 15 other things at the same time. And so the nostalgia creates this disconnect between our heart and the truths that we're actually singing. That's not limited just to Christmas music. That can happen with any worship music if you uh, get like too familiar with something. That's why some Churches, like, hymns aren't a thing that they do because you strike up, like, great is thy faithfulness and everybody is just, great is thy faithfulness, oh God, our Father. You know, like, what's on the grocery list and why is my child coloring on the chair? And, like, your, your brain and your heart just go a thousand different places. That's not just a modern thing. Like, this, is, this has been a challenge throughout the church, all throughout history. In fact, Isaac Watts, who we'll talk about more in a little bit, he left a church service in the 1700s, young man, and he said to his father, to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly, while the psalm is upon our lips, might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect that there is no fervency in our inward religion. We just kind of mindlessly singing, to which his father replied, then write them something different. We'll talk more about Isaac Watts in a moment. But our hope this Advent season is that we want to like inject a little bit of life into some of these Christmas songs that we sing. Advent, five week, five Sunday period here. It, Advent just means arrival or coming. And so the Advent season is something that the church has done throughout church history to both celebrate the first arrival of Jesus at Christmas and to anticipate the second arrival at Jesus when he comes at the end of all things. And so Advent sits in this period of like joyful reflection, but also hopeful anticipation. And we do that between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Our hope over the next five weeks is to take some of these very familiar songs that we know and try to stir our heart toward worship as we join in that historic, historical season of Advent. We want to engage and inflame our hearts in worship. And so we thought as a pastoral team, this would be kind of a neat way to do so. So we're going to look at some of these songs that we sing 
traditionally during Christmas. And the, the plan is not to like take the lyrics and like work through them as if they're scripture. That would be weird. The plan is to take the scriptures that give rise to the lyrics. Go back to what was it that inspired these writers to write what they did and dig into the truths of those scriptures and try to create some sort of heart connect between what it is that we sing during this season and why it is that we would sing that as an act of worship. The hope is to spur us into deeper worship throughout the next five weeks while we anticipate and celebrate the two comings of Jesus. We're gonna start that process this morning with the song, Joy to the World. Let me give you some like quick history and facts before we jump into this. The lyrics of Joy to the World were first published in 1719 and they were written by Isaac Watts, who I mentioned earlier. Watts was born in Southampton, England in 1674 and he was from what is known as a nonconformist family, which just meant that his family was not Anglican. He was incredibly smart, bright from a young age and the town that he grew up in actually was willing to like raise the funds necessary as a community to send him to school at either Oxford or Cambridge. But the problem with going to either Oxford or Cambridge was that they were Anglican schools at the time. So you had to be willing to sign off on their theology or their doctrine and belief. And Isaac Watts, as a good nonconformist, said, I won't do that. So he rejected the money went to what was the best nonconformist school at the time. And then following his graduation, he entered into pastoral ministry. He was the pastor of London's Mark Lane Independent Church, which was one of England's largest and most influential nonconformist churches. But he was only able to serve in that capacity for about 10 years before his health started to fail. And it's not his pastoring that Isaac Watts is known for. He's best known as the father of English hymnody. Now, hymnody is not a word that we use very often. It just means that he wrote a lot of songs. In fact, he wrote a lot of songs that if you're, you know, someone who grew up in a hymn-singing tradition, they're songs that you probably know. He wrote over 750 hymns throughout his lifetime, including what is the most published and sung English hymn of all time, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He's also the author of Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, and Joy to the World. And as like an important note here, his hymn writing career began as almost exclusively an act of paraphrasing the Psalms and then setting them to music. And so in a 1719 collection of hymns, Joy to the World makes its first appearance as a paraphrase of Psalm 98. It actually had a different title and different music than we use today. The, the tune that we sing, Joy to the World to, was actually set to the poem in 1848. And since then, Joy to the World is the most published and most recorded song of all time. The question is, why? Like, what are we singing and why? So if you've got your Bible open there, we're gonna read Psalm 98. Now let me say this before I read it. You're not going to read Psalm 98 and think to yourself, ah, joy to the world. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Um, Remember, this is, joy to the world is Isaac Watts paraphrasing this psalm and then setting it to music. So here's what Psalm 98 says. Sing to the Lord, or sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, all the ends of the earth. 
have seen our God's victory. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant. Shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre in melodious song, with trumpet trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our King. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout for or shout together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for all of the blessings that you pour into our lives. God, for a stretch of days here in the fall where we can stop and make it the sort of task of our heart to just be grateful for all that we have. God, we praise you that you have performed wonders. You've won victory. You've displayed your righteousness in the sight of the nations. God, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, would your spirit give us a deep-seated joy? God, would you help us to rejoice, to join with the rivers in clapping and the mountains in shouting the praise that you deserve? God, connect our hearts to the things that we sing. Deepen our sense of worship and praise. God, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the wonder of who you are and all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. If you're uh, regularly a note taker, there's only one slide this morning. So over the next 35 minutes or so, you can just write that one slide a hundred times if you want to. Feel like you're really jotting some things down. The reason there's only one slide this morning, oftentimes in our sort of like Western mindset, we think of preaching as predominantly an intellectual exercise. There's like information that's transferred from the person up front to those of us in the seats. And that is a part of preaching, certainly. There's a teaching element to it. But preaching at its best should also be a heart connection. That we're like taking scripture. uh, One famous preacher said that the act of preaching is holding a microphone to the mouth of God and letting it stir our hearts in exultation. So there's only one slide this morning. And the reason is because I really, my hope is that we can connect to hearts this morning. Joy is not something that intellectually transfers from one person to another. Joy is something that takes hold in your soul. And so if you're a note taker, you can write down all the things that you want. I'm not going to like confiscate your notes on the way out. But I would encourage you to do more listening this morning than you do writing. And this is, here's your one slide. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God. If you have Psalm 98 open there in front of you, what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through this psalm. We'll connect it to joy to the world. And then we're going to end by, uh, I'm going to give you 25 reasons that you can have joy this Advent season. 
So Psalm 98. Psalm 98 moves in three parts. And those parts are actually uh, sort of given to you in the verb tenses, which sounds uh, incredibly heart-stirring. But the three parts are past, present, and future. And if you've got a CSB Bible there in front of you, which is what uh, we use on Sunday mornings, you'll notice that there are three paragraphs. And those roughly sort of align with the past, present, and future parts of this. And so the first three verses would be the first chunk there in your Bible. It's all about God's faithfulness in the past. Sing to the Lord, or sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders, past. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. That's in the past. He's made his victory known, revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, remembered his love and faithfulness. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Now there's actually like a little bit of debate among scholars as to what victory is being referred to. What immediately jumps to mind for most people when they read something like that would be the Exodus. It's like the Old Testament sort of salvation moment where God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. Some scholars think the reference is actually more forward-looking to Israel's redemption from Babylon as like a second sort of exodus event that the Israelites are scattered in their exile and God will bring victory when he collects them back together. Others say that the ambiguity is on purpose. That by not naming an event, the psalmist intends to move us beyond thinking about one single thing and instead to offer a new song to the Lord because he has repeatedly been victorious on behalf of his people. That's who he is and what he does. Either way, I think the key rests in what is almost unstated in the first three verses. What is the reason for the new song that we are to sing to the Lord? He is. Not the event, or not the results of the event for us. A couple of years ago, I took the entire year, and in my quiet times, I just went through the Psalms twice over the course of the year. And in the Bible that I do my quiet times in, as I started to prepare this message, I noticed that I, a few years ago, had circled a number of phrases in the first paragraph. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel and all the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. What's this song of praise all about? Well, it's entirely about God. It's what he has done, who he is, how he acts. And there are two other important kind of aspects to this that are, that are buried in the Hebrew here in the first three verses. The Lord has made his victory known. When we think about victory, we think in terms of two teams or two entities. One wins, one loses. The one that wins is victorious. There's certainly that connotation to the Hebrew word here. But there's also another aspect to it, and it's why the next phrase is rendered, he has revealed his righteousness. That word victory carries with it a sense of right salvation. So he has delivered his people it's given victory. His right hand and his holy arm has, has done that. He alone did it. But the nature by which he has delivered that victory is important. He's done it in righteousness. He's brought his justice and his rightness and order to the earth. And we're told that 
All the nations have seen it, not just his people. And then verse three, he has remembered his love. Love and faithfulness is the way the CSB translate that, translates that. The word for love there in the Hebrew is hesed. When we think about love, we think about the sort of like hallmark romantic Christmas comedies where one person's emotions like surge toward another. And there's like a feeling that motivates the love. God's love here, the hesed love, is more of like the delight of fulfilling an obligation. That doesn't sound all that snazzy to us in Western America. But I think I probably resonate with some of you when I say that like there's a sense of delight that I get when I just dutifully do the thing that I said I was going to do or the thing that I'm supposed to do. And so there's a sense of like delight for me that you come to church on Sunday and expect me to be up here and I'm here. Like there's, there's a sense of delight in that. It's an obligation, but it's one that I delight in fulfilling. That's kind of the nature of hesed love. God made a promise to his people and he delights in fulfilling the promise. Like his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. That's hesed love. This is not God remembering Israel and thinking fondly of them and his heart and emotions kind of like surging within him so that he does something. This is God who made a promise in the past, a covenant with a people. And he is delighted to fulfill the covenant. That's, that's the love that God has for his people. And again, all the ends of the earth have seen that. Sing a new song, the psalm says. Then in verse four, the tenses shift. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. This is present now. Be jubilant, shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and melodious song, with trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. Shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our King. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. So it's like the faithfulness of God in the past and then the praise of creation in the present. That's the response to what the Lord has done. Praise. Like let the whole earth shout, literally like burst forth a dam that can no longer hold back the strain of all the water on one side and it breaks through and bursts forth. That's the image here. In fact, you take that word and you get all of its senses, it's actually more akin to like a war cry. Like, the, like you cannot contain yourself any longer and so a shout just like explodes out of you. Psalmist says, sing a new song because this is what God has done and that is the appropriate response. And humanity is to do that with triumphant shouts and songs and instruments and melodies, but it's not just humanity that's praising God for his victory. Like creation is in on the act. The sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it, they resound, the rivers clap their hands, the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord because this victory that he has won is so evident in everything that's happening that like the universe would erupt in praise. Creation is in on the act of singing this new song. The righteous victory of the Lord is such that nature responds to it. 
the rivers and mountains, the seas and the animals that dwell in it. And then in verse 9, you get a future sense. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. Our praise, this new song that we're supposed to sing, isn't relegated to reflection on the Lord's, or solely to reflection on the Lord's prior faithfulness. It's also rooted in his coming return and judgment. He's coming again. And he's faithful. And he delights in fulfilling his promises. So as certainly as the son came once, he will come again. And God will delight in sending him. So rejoice. Join the rivers in clapping. Get on board with the mountains in shouting. Because when he comes, he's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to take everything that was wrong and he's going to put it right. When he comes, he's going to judge humanity fairly. Like there's not going to be any quibbling. Saved by God's grace or not, when humanity stands before the Lord in judgment and he gives a righteous and just judgment, no one's going to argue because it's going to be fair and everyone's going to know it. So sing a new song to the Lord, the psalmist says. Here's what he has done. Here's what's happening now. Here's what he will do. So let's tie some of this together. Isaac Watts takes this psalm and he paraphrases it into the lyrics that we sing in the song Joy to the World. And now clearly, Isaac Watts' reading of this psalm is looking forward to Christ, right? Like, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 98. Isaac Watts understands that the gospel is the central piece that all of the Old Testament is moving toward and that all of history, like, emanates from. It's Jesus who will perform the wonder of all wonders. It's Jesus who will ultimately win victory. It's Jesus who will reveal the righteousness of God in the sight of the nations. It's Jesus whereby we see that God remembers his love and faithfulness to his people. It's Jesus that all the ends of the earth will see. It's Jesus that the whole of creation rises to worship. It's Jesus who will return to the earth to judge in righteousness. It's Jesus who will be the fair standard by which all humanity is judged. And thus, it's Jesus who is worthy of our praise, our worship, and our joy. And so, let's just think through the lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, verse six. Let every heart prepare him room, the nations, right? And heaven and nature sing everything. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs, or sometimes you catch a translation of it, that's let men their songs employ. Like put together that melody. Sing that song while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrow grow. Right? He's going to come and judge righteously. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. 
Why all of that? Because in the birth of Jesus, it's all come to a head. The child in the manger is the key to it all. The child in the manger is the wonder of wonders. He's gonna provide the victory of all victories. He is righteousness in flesh. He is the love and faithfulness of God. Come to the people of God. Right, Jesus is this great victor who's like entered into the arena. Only in this case, the victor isn't an athlete, but the victor is God sent from God. And the arena is not an athletic field, but it's the earth itself, the theater of God's great redemptive work, right? In Jesus, the headlining actor has taken the stage. Only in this case, the headliner isn't an actor, it's the creator. And the stage is not in a building somewhere, but it's the whole of the universe, which this child was actually part of birthing into existence. And so Isaac Watts says, joy to the world. Like it ought to fill the place, heaven and earth, fields and floods, rocks, hills, plains, every heart, all the nations, joy because of Christ. How does the psalmist say it? He says, sing a new song. The whole earth, would sing and triumph, shout with instruments. They would play melodies. The rivers will clap. The mountains will shout. And it's all about joy. It's all bound up in God. And in Christmas, Christmas season or in the Advent season, we celebrate the joy of the coming of Jesus. We anticipate the next coming of Jesus. But the temptation at Christmas is to place all of our joy in the blessings rather than the blesser. Like everything about the way we set up Christmas is to sort of celebrate and find joy in the gifts that God has given us. Oh, the real joy is family. Find your joy there. The real joy is gifts. Get your joy there. The joy is like the baked goods. 17 pies cookies that you can't possibly eat all of. Like there's the joy. No, Christian joy is bound up entirely in God. It's about the blesser, not the blessings. And so we embrace like the discipline of Advent, of focusing our hearts and minds on his arrival because we need the constant reminder that all of this joy is about God and not the things that God gives. So I'm going to give you 25 reasons to be joyful this Advent season. Not all of these are going to resonate with you, probably. Everyone comes in here or listens on the podcast or watches online or whatever, and they're in different seasons of life, and you've got different stuff going on. My hope is that one or two of these strike you square in the heart. You can forget the other 23 and just cling to those two for the next five weeks. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God, the reality of who he is. So number one, take joy because the holiness of God is unmatched. There's literally no one like him. Holy means other. So you take the very best of the people that are close to you that you love. They're made in the image of God. There's something of God in them and yet God in those qualities is entirely different, infinitely better, unthinkably above, set apart and aside. 
Take joy. All the brokenness and the darkness and whatnot that you see around us, God is entirely other, different, set apart. Number two, the righteousness of God is unblemished. He is incapable of doing wrong. There is nothing in all that God has ever done that would like besmirch his being. And so whatever might be going on in your life right now, God is not to blame. It might take the long scope of eternity for us to see exactly how it is that God was good in the midst of whatever was going on. But when we get onto the other side and we look back, he absolutely will prove himself to have been good and righteous and just and loving and kind. And so you can take joy now because you know the long view is gonna prove that to be true. The justice of God is incorruptible. That's number three. Like he can't be tempted to do what is wrong. There's no amount of money that you could pay that would get the judge to rule against what is just and right and fair. Number four, the grace of God is abundant. Like super abundant is the word that scripture uses. There is no sin that that grace is not sufficient to cover. Maybe you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and maybe part of what is holding you up is the sense of like, I'm too bad. My sin is too big. No, take joy. It's not. And it can't be and it won't ever be. His grace is abundant. Take joy. Number five, The faithfulness of God is unending. He will never go back on his promises. He won't. He can't. In fact, it delights him to uphold every single one of them. And so you read scripture and you see the promises of God to the people of God, brother or sister in Christ, it gives him deep joy to fulfill every single one of those. And so there may be one that you feel like you're clinging to in this particular season of life. Take joy. He's going to fulfill it, and he's going to delight in fulfilling it for you. He's faithful. The compassion of God is overflowing, number six. His heart toward you goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Like it'll never stop. You might feel alone and isolated, hurt and in pain. His compassion is overflowing toward you always. Number seven, the patience of God is inexhaustible. Like you will wear out trying to wear out God before God wears out. The word for patience in scripture is long-suffering. Like he is long-suffering. How long? How long is it going to take? Because his patience is unending. And so we're stubborn in our repentance. We're slow in our sanctification. Maybe we've heard the gospel a lot and we've not repented. His patience is unending. He'll just keep plugging away and you will wear out before he does. The mercy of God is unceasing. 
Number eight, scripture tells us it's new every morning. You wake up in the morning, mercy is pouring out. You try to exhaust it during the day and he's patient because when you wake up the next morning, new mercy. Never gonna stop. So take joy. Number nine, the steadfastness of God is immovable. All that he resolves to do, he will do. Take joy. Ah, he said that he's gonna overcome sin at the end of all things. Well, take joy. He's steadfast and immovable. He's gonna do it. Number 10, the love of God is unparalleled. The dim shadows of love that we know and cherish here on this earth, they don't compare. Like the Disney movie version of love, dim shadow. The love that you enjoy from your spouse, the love that you give to your children, good things, but dim shadows of the unparalleled love of God. Take joy. Joy to the world. Because in the coming of Jesus, all of those high and lofty ideas were given flesh and they came into the world. In unmatched holiness and unblemished righteousness and incorruptible justice, abundant grace, unending faithfulness, overflowing compassion, inexhaustible patience, unceasing mercy, immovable steadfastness, unparalleled love. When you think about Jesus in the manger, all of those things are in flesh before you and for you. So take joy. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God, which includes the work of the Son. And so number 11, take joy because Jesus has paid your Scripture uses an abundance of like metaphors and illusions to try to help us understand what has happened in the work of Jesus. And one of those is that our debt has been paid. And when you stand before God and he takes the mountain of your sin and puts it, the ledger book open and sort of writes it all out and you see that debt and Jesus steps forward as your substitute, those scales are gonna balance every single time. Paid because of his work on the cross. Take joy. Scripture also says that Jesus has lifted our burdens, not just once on the cross, but he's also willing and able and ready to lift your burdens forever. You can cast all of them upon him and he'll carry them. Because you can't, and you weren't designed to, and you're not meant to, but he can. We're told that Jesus has washed clean our stains. It's number 13. That even if you fancy yourself really moral and well-behaved, you're a good person, Scripture says that's like filthy rags held up before the spotless righteousness of who God is, but take heart and take joy because Jesus has washed that filthy rag clean. And when you stand before him in your moment of judgment, you will be spotless and white, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. So take joy. We're told that Jesus has removed our guilt. Number 14 that we've been given his innocence. One of the metaphors that Paul draws upon regularly is like a courtroom scene. The idea of redemption, like you have been purchased. Guilt has been paid for. That ledger book full of your sin, Jesus has paid. He's removed all of that guilt, every last bit of it. 
and he's given you his innocence. It's not just that he's taken away your guilt and left you at neutral. He's taken away your guilt and piled his innocence on top of you. You take joy because he's eliminated our shame. Shame is the idea that it's not just that like I did something bad, but because I did something bad, I am bad. That's what shame says. Scripture tells us that that shame has been eliminated. That we're not bad because Christ is so good. It's not that you could do enough good things to make yourself not bad. It's that Jesus is the one who is good and he has taken the shame from you. And now you're this new creation. Number 16, our slavery to sin has been canceled. Take joy. You don't have to live in those shackles any longer. It's not just that at the end of all things, you could finally cast off the chains of your sin. No, we're told that because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf and his triumphant resurrection, you can have those chains broken now. And you can walk in freedom from that sin and not be slave to your flesh and your urges any longer, but instead be slave to the goodness of Christ. Number 17, take joy because death has been defeated. What awaits brothers and sisters in Christ is life and life only. But that also is not a deferred thing to take joy in. You can have life now. It's not just hang on until Jesus comes back and then you can have life. No, he says, I came to give you life and to give you life abundantly. And you can have that now in him. Take joy and take joy, number 18, because our eternity has been secured. Scripture tells us that if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that you've got an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, and it's just waiting for you because Christ has won it on your behalf. So joy to the world because in the work of Jesus, all of humanity can experience the infinite blessings of salvation. And to borrow from William Plumer in his commentary on Psalm 98, where the benefits received are infinite, the praises in response can never be too extravagant. Sing a new song. You've been given infinite blessings. Take joy. Sing. Infinite blessings. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God. And that includes the promises of what is to come. Number 19, take joy because Jesus' return is certain. His second arrival is as certain as his first. Scripture foretells both, tells us what will happen at each of them, and God delights in fulfilling his promises so the sun will come again. And take joy, number 20, because when the sun comes again, Sin's days are numbered. Satan knows it and he's known it since Genesis chapter three. All of the brokenness and all of the pain and all of the darkness, like you look around at our world and you think this place is going to pot. Take joy. Because it's not gonna end in the pot. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, sin will be no more.
Number 21, take joy because pain's existence is limited. If you're walking through experiences that just feel like they're never going to end, physical pain, emotional pain, it's limited. Its days are numbered. It doesn't get the last word. You can take joy because we are told that when Jesus returns, he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's going to take all the painful, hurtful things, and he's going to make every single one of them right. And what you will experience for all of eternity is not the pain that has marked our existence in a broken world, but the unending joy that awaits us in glory. Number 22, take joy because history's trajectory is toward glory. Everything's moving in one direction. And it's confusing and difficult for us to see in the middle of our day-to-day life, but everything is moving to the return of the sun, the making right of all things, and eternal glory. You can take joy. Joy to the world. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the down payment on these yet-to-come certainties but they will come. Christian joy is bound up entirely in God, which means our joy is also rooted within what I'm gonna call the current of the universe. Number 23, we'll take joy because heaven rejoices continually. We sing a song here every once in a while. It's got a bridge that if you're not like super familiar with scripture, both like Old Testament, sort of like Leviticus kind of stuff, or the book of Revelation, this bridge is maybe confusing. The bridge is day and night and night and day let incense arise. Like we sing that. And it's always interesting to me because when we sing that song, people get really into it at that part. And I'm like, I wonder if everybody knows what we're even talking about. It's a, it's a backward and a forward image. That backward in the tabernacle and in the temple, there was incense that was to burn continually before the Lord, drifting up to him in this like pleasing aroma of praise. And then when you get into the book of Revelation, it loops in that same idea and says that incense is arising constantly to the Lord. That's the current of heaven continual, unending praise. And so take joy because that's what the universe is doing. Joyfully praising the glory of God. Number 24, take joy because creation rejoices by design, like simply in its existence. There are galaxies far, far away, Star Wars, that we've never seen before that are just out there galaxying to the glory of God. Like we've never even laid eyes on them. But they're out there existing to the praise and to the glory of God. I think I've used this before, but spiders doing all their spidery grossness in some way, shape, or form, just by their simple existence, are giving praise and glory to God. Join in. 
Like your dog that runs to the door when you get home, tail wagging, is excited to see you, but over and above that in the grand scheme of things, is praising the Lord in a way that we can't fully understand. But brother or sister in Christ, get on board. God will have every bit of glory and praise from every drop of his creation. And here's number 25. Humanity can choose to join in. He will get glory and praise from you. He will. And from this moment until the moment that he returns and judges all things, you can either choose to get on board with that in your life or you can choose to reject it. But part of being a follower of Jesus is singing a new song. One of joy that jumps into the current of the universe and swims along with all that we have and all that we are. Joy to the world. Because when we wrap our joy in God, a God who is holy and righteous, just and gracious, faithful and compassionate and patient and merciful and steadfast and loving, who's paid our debt and lifted our burdens, who's washed our stains and removed our guilt, who's eliminated our shame and canceled our slavery to sin, who's defeated death and secured our eternity, who will return one day, put an end to sin, put an end to pain. We wrap our joy in that God. We get on board with what heaven is doing and with what creation was intended to do. And I promise you, that's where you will come to life. So, Brian and the worship team are gonna come up here and we're gonna sing joy to the world. Now, oftentimes when we do this, it's like a funeral dirge. Like the tempo is up, Brian drinks a lot of coffee. He's usually fairly caffeinated and like really going for it. But our nostalgia for the song, we just kind of stand there. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. As if that's a boring event. No, like the Lord has come. And he's won victory. And the Psalms say, sing him a new song because he's worthy of it. Because that's what creation is doing. Because all of the universe explodes in praise to him. And so humanity, get on board. And sing a new song to the Lord. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Let's sing together. <laughs>